Hello, builders of good. Thank you for tuning in to the Build Good Fundraising Podcast. Fundraising isn't easy, but it should be simple. So on this show, we take the mystery out of raising money. Now, on every episode, we coach you to build your fundraising like a flywheel. The flywheel has five steps. Number one is listening to donors. Number two is engaging them. Number three is asking the right people for the right things. Number four is celebrating every gift. Number five is reporting back in a responsive and real-time way. If you master the five parts of the flywheel, your fundraising flywheel will start to spin reliably with less effort on your part. Your revenue will grow and so will your career. Now, every week we focus on one part of the flywheel. And today we are focusing on all five parts of the flywheel. We're doing something pretty cool. We are comparing the five steps of the flywheel to some core behaviors of servant leadership. Now, can the way you lead internally, the way you show up for your team, can that actually like make your fundraising more effective? Are those two related at all? Well, on today's podcast, we chat with Evan Wildstein about 10 core behaviors of servant leaders and how they might just improve the way you fundraise. Behaviors like listening, empathy, healing, building community, and much more. And of course, we'll get into some super practical ways to activate servant leadership in your own shop to boost philanthropy. For 20 years, Evan's been non-profiteer. He's raised funds and developed inspiring programs for organizations like the Juilliard School, Rice University, and Asia Society. And he recently published his first book, The Non-Profiteer's Fundraising Field Guide. It's a realistic and inspiring roadmap for anyone who wants to engage with donors, who wants to grow revenue and improve philanthropy. That sounds like listeners of this podcast. Evan's also got 30 super practical applications that you can implement today in the book. And it's full of heartfelt stories from nonprofit leaders. He actually interviewed a bunch of nonprofit leaders for every chapter as well. So here we go. Here's my conversation with Evan Wildstein. Evan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. Congratulations on launching your first book, The Nonprofiteers Fundraising Field Guide. We've got people listening to this podcast, I'm sure, who have aspirations of writing their own book. You're a frontline fundraiser who actually wrote a book about fundraising and about servant leadership. What's that like? Give us a bit of a window into what your life has been like giving birth to this project. Oh, yeah. And I'll for those listening who don't know me, well, it's the second birth this year. We had our first, our kiddo is three months old today. So the window into book writing is sort of musty and needs a good power cleaning and nobody wants to change the screens. The piece that I wrote is an expanded version of my master's thesis, which is about twice as long as the master's thesis. And I spent a lot of time digging into narrative and community stories. So people who are doing this work or have done this work and maybe have moved into consulting are now CEOs. That I would say is is and was the secret sauce of this book. I had really academically sound, because people told me so, content in the book from the, the perspective of the data and the research. But like what it was missing was sort of like the soul of the book. And we some of the books that I have looked to that are put out by our, you know, our friends at like the big major publishing houses and even people who've done self-published and indie roots, uh, the ones that I really gravitate towards are the ones that include voices of the communities that are intended to be served by them. It's not a it's not a keynote speech written out in transcript form. It's more of a conversation. And I had a little bit of an easier time getting the book version ready because there was some academic heft behind it. It was my master's thesis. And I just thought with the advice and encouragement of a, a pseudo-mentor of mine in this field that I could do something bigger with it that might inspire more than the you know 16 people who would have read it if I submitted it to an academic journal. Uh, and the end result was a twenty twenty one thousand dollar tiny little ninety page read, which is what the joke that I keep making is that someone told me you could read it in three quick trips to the bathroom. And I think sometimes the the books on leadership and nonfiction practical things are two, three, four hundred pages, and it takes you months to read it. This one you can really fly through, 
And it's that's what I love about it. People could kind of read it, pick it up today, spend an hour, put it down, and tomorrow you've got 10, 20, 30 practices that you can try and do a little bit better in fundraising internally, externally, but all through the lens of service as a leadership philosophy. We're going to get into servant leadership as it applies to fundraising. Not a lot of people have talked about that before. We're also going to relate it a little bit to the flywheel and see if there's a bit of overlap there. But before we do that, every day when you wake up, you're a frontline fundraiser. This author thing, this is something that you did on the side while also having a kid and while having a full-time job as a fundraiser, which is what makes you so uniquely qualified to be writing this book, I think. What's what's your day job look like? What sort of challenges do you face? Sure. The day job, which I'm on pause from because I'm on parental leave, but day-to-day, I am the essentially the chief development officer for a statewide public policy advocacy organization here. You and I were talking earlier about Texas. The organization is called Every Texan. And our work is really meant to advocate for people who need but have not. And we do that through healthcare, voting access, education, et cetera, et cetera. The the pillars that really make up a a well-civilized populace. And my day-to-day is working with the team of people down here, in the states, you know, the distinction between 501c3, which is most registered charities, and 501c4s, which are can do a bit more advocacy and lobbying. I work with a really smart group of people who who act like we're a 501c4 because they're like social workers at heart and they want to go to the Capitol and do really strong advocacy. But we are a, a traditional on paper 501c3. So the ability for us to translate what we do, advocacy and public policy is such a long road. It's We're not giving a sandwich to a hungry person directly. We're working with state leaders to understand how bills they pass have exponential um, disastrous consequences sometimes for the people who are most in need. So advocacy is a very long road. And I get to work across the team on pulling together thought leadership for foundations, corporate partners, and individual donors to understand why policy public policy and advocacy are important, and in such a way that they want to part with their hard-earned dollars to make that possible. So that's the the day job. The writing aspect, in 2020, I think it was, I I discovered Medium, the, the online you know writing thing, and I started publishing and posting a bunch. It's very easy on there. And some of the things started getting picked up by their in-house publications on work and things. And so, you know, thousands of people would read and comment. And that got me thinking that maybe there's more I can do with this. And I started communicating with the folks at like Nonprofit Pro and Candid, you know, now that the glaring overhouse for Philanthropy News Digest and others. And I publish a lot of things in there too, sort of op-ed editorial experience or expertise-based things. Just yesterday, I had a piece come out on how I think we as nonprofiteers can do a better job with our foundation partners. Down here, the Giving USA report, which there are versions of this all around the world, but the Giving USA report showed kind of like, people are feeling kind of sad about how giving is going. But when we look at foundations and institutional funders, some of those numbers are promising. And I've been fortunate that the words have been making themselves to the right people who are interested, editors that are very kind to work with me. And that stuff gets out there. And that's also helped to drive a lot of attention to the book and the work that I do. So in some ways, I think I am a unique case study for this kind of thing because I'm not a consultant selling a particular avenue of my service. This is really the book and other things I write are all about. I do this and this has worked for me. Here's why I think it can and should work for you. You've called it a non-profiteers fundraising field guide. A field guide has this connotation that is super tactical and practical because a field guide is usually this thing that tells you where to go. This is what the lay of the land is. Here's where you go. Here's what to avoid. Was that the point of the book for you? It was. It was. When I realized the thesis version, very practical, but very academic. And I think the title of that paper was like 30 words long, uh, you know, activating the core. I can't even remember. I won't bore you by trying to find it. But it was super practical. And I wanted that not to get lost in the content of the book. One of the people who reviewed it on Amazon said something like, Wild Scene does all this in only 90 pages. And in my mind, it's like, sometimes these books are so expansively huge, you can't really get through them. And then by the time you do, you're like, wait, was it page 190 or 290 that had that really great that great line on it? And so the field guide element of it, it's sort of broken down based on the te- what I focus on are the 10 
what I find to be the core behaviors of servant leadership. And even in the early part of the book, it's like, if you want to go to the listening section, here are your pages. If you want to go to conceptualization or healing, here are your pages. So it's kind of like a roadmap. I, it's funny, you and I, at one point, we're talking about like publishing and, and things. I originally wanted it to be like, are you familiar with Rick Steves' travel translation books? Those like little, like quite literally, yeah. the little pocketbooks. And I was like, that's what I want this book to be. And I had several publisher friends say, if you write a book that size, it's going to be so difficult for people to actually read it because the pages won't stay open and it people are going to it's going to be a disaster. So I said, well, how small could we make it where it like could still fit in a pocket? And so that's kind of the size that we landed on, but meant to be very quick read, very practicable, very practical. And that's what I've heard from people. So I think in in some small bent I've, I've hopefully delivered on that part. Yeah. You talked about the 10 key behaviors. Behaviors drive habits, habits drive culture. Culture often drives results in our fundraising. So it's all centered around servant leadership. My Robert Greenleaf is a little rusty. And so let's just assume somebody who's listening to this pod has heard the term servant leadership, but isn't entirely clear on what it is. They think it might be this vague concept that a leader is just a servant, but there's this whole body of knowledge around it. There's a whole institute for servant leadership that was developed off the back end of some of that work. So can you give us like a one minute primer of what servant leadership is? That's a, the length of a football field we'd need to walk for me to properly. And by football, I mean American football. I have no idea how long a soccer pitch is. <laughs> the better place for me to start with this is usually what servant leadership isn't or is not. And the misconception that I often find, and I found this, I've been a, a pseudo student of servant leadership since the early 2010s. I found this really great, also little book called Fortuitous Encounters, which sounds like an adult <laughs> an adult book, Fortuitous Encounters, but it tells these tiny little stories, like three, four, five pages each of little servant leadership experiences and vignettes. And as I read through that, I said, I was confusing servant leadership with this like very heady thought leadership thing. You would often find that servant leaders in practice are not necessarily people who would call themselves servant leaders. They're kind of that like Simon sinek you know, wolf leading from the back. And so servant leadership, the things that I think it isn't includes a list of things like people being boastful or if you are in front of the pack, you're doing so to model good behaviors and growing the team around you. What is often the case in this mentality of service, when we think of like customer service and things like that, we often lead from a place of serving too much. I had a conversation about this with Marion Dunch about her, her philosophy on her show and the idea of giving from abundance, not giving from what we don't have. And in the servant leadership philosophy, this idea that if we give too much of ourselves, we will have nothing less to serve from. And so servant leadership is a way that you can grow the orbit of people around you while not pulling from yourself. That includes things like making sure that you're planning space in your calendar to take vacations, like real vacations, like we talked about earlier, and making budget money available in your organization's budget, whether you're a $50,000 organization or a $50 million organization, for people to be able to have access to mental health benefits and professional development. So much of this is intrinsic, how we look at what things we can conceptualize and be aware of for our own selves so that we can do the work of being good stewards and solicitors of our donors. I couldn't do it in a minute, but that's the best <laughs> that I could really come to. I want to get into some of the key behaviors of, of servant leadership. But before we do that, can you tie this back to fundraising a little bit? Because we sometimes think that leadership and fundraising are two separate things. Um, you know, there's leaders over here, there's fundraisers over here. And uh, we've talked on this show about how almost everything is downstream from leadership. And, and oftentimes you don't have a fundraising problem, you have a leadership problem. Can you tie the two together a little bit and and maybe you can draw a line, it doesn't have to be a straight line, but a line between servant leadership and actual like improved fundraising outcomes? Yeah. Where I would start if I were looking at verticals that get built, and verticals meaning the things you do, the programs you have, the ways we do things built on the cement or like the well-founded bedrock that we that we have up in the Northeast. I have always thought of leadership whatever philosophy of leadership you follow. Servant leadership is one of the probably 10, 20, 30 codified versions of leadership as 
being something that is verb oriented. I posted on LinkedIn about this today and I got some quite fiery, not combative, but some people that can only think of leadership in terms of a noun-based reality, like the person and the position and the hierarchy. And I have always thought of leadership as a verb. Leadership is a set of behaviors that you do. Servant leadership is behaviors. And that's why I call them behaviors and not necessarily people being servant leaders. What I, There's a great book called Servant Leaders in Training by a guy named John Horseman that posits the idea that it's actually really difficult to ascend to being a servant leader. I think most of us would consider ourselves who subscribe to this servant leaders in training. Like I hope one day to get there. You know, I've been sort of formally at this for five or 10 years. And maybe by the time I'm in my 60s or 70s, I can look back and say that that's what I've done. But what I found interesting in this book is as I was doing my master's studies and looking more into servant leadership and those core behaviors, the 10 that I focus on are the ones that got codified from one of my colleagues in this field, who is a guy named Larry Spears. He looked at really everything Bob Greenleaf did, and he he picked out the 10 things that were most prevalent. And we can get into that full list. It, it's 10 things, but it's long. And a lot of the writing, research, keynotes, workshops, and everything on servant leadership is, is I think, sometimes kept intentionally at a 5,000, 10,000-foot view. And you'll have someone that say, like, to be a servant leader, we must listen. To be a servant leader, we, we should subscribe to empathy. And then you're sitting in the audience and saying, got it, sure, agree. How? You know, how do we do that? And so what I tried to do is, is think about this stuff. And I'm like, yes, as fundraisers, servant leaders consider themselves people who listen first. A true servant leader, Bob Greenleaf said, responds to any problem by listening first. And usually from a perspective of silence. He was a Quaker and Quaker meeting, Quaker meeting house practices are very steeped in silence. I like to talk a lot. So one of the issues I have with my own servant leadership training is being a better listener. But I went through these 10 behaviors and that part of the book, Mike, you asked about like writing it, that part of the book wrote itself pretty quickly because I said, yeah, fundraising leaders have foresight. They know enough that an economic recession is coming. Have we diversified our revenue streams? Have we looked at the things internally we're spending money on that we can reverse so that way we as fundraisers and fundraising leaders can help conceptualize a budget that is not just revenue heavy, but we can help also cull on the expenses. I posted recently about that. That's what I think the culture of philanthropy really is when you've got fundraisers, be they a gift officer, data entry manager, et cetera, et cetera, at the table when there are quote unquote leadership level decisions, conversations happening. I hope that orbited somewhat near an answer that was coherent. So we've structured this pod around this philosophy of a fundraising flywheel, which is to get away from funnel way of thinking and fundraising and more about um, centering relationships that are that are dynamic and that that sort of, you mentioned the word orbit, right? That orbit around relationships rather than trying to force people through a funnel. So in our model, uh, as you know, it starts by by listening. You've got at least two behaviors in the framework that you've got in your book, which kind of relate to that. You've got you've got listening and empathy. Can you talk a little bit more about those core behaviors? Yeah. And I would stretch to say that one of the servant leader behaviors of awareness also fits in there. So listening is listening. The thing that's always helpful to say is this, this idea between the, the sort of psychological mind-oriented practice of listening versus the physiological oral, A-U-R-A-L, reception of sound. I think there's plenty of people who consider themselves listeners when they're really just scratching the surface of hearing. And you see a lot of those conversations where a donor will say, blah, 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 blah. And the fundraiser would say, interesting, and then only hear the topicalness of it and respond to this particular point on the strategic plan, as opposed to really listening to those spaces between what a donor says. You know, If you're talking with someone and they talk about cancer comes up and you see sort of like a tear well up in their eye. One of the things I often had difficulty with was trying to sort of fill uncomfortable space. You know, this the opposite of the 75-25 rule where people are talking 75%, you're talking 25%. The idea of listening, when you look at the research, it says we can listen to three times more words than we can speak. It's like the reason we have two ears and one mouth hole. We can and must do that better. And I think some of the best and most interesting, meaningful conversations I've had with donors, be they corporate reps, individuals, foundations, I leave those meetings 
with a well-moist throat that hasn't said very much because I make a few key prompts and then just sort of like spin the tether and let the donor go. And you can't always get that. I've worked with some folks who, my gosh, I had to speak 95% of the time or this would have been the most you know, tie on your shoe looking conversation. But it's it's the thing that I that I feel we need to lean into more. Like if you do nothing else on this list of 10, you know, if you're not really at a place where you think you can work on healing with a donor for some wrong that needed to be made right or be empathetic to try and understand where they're coming from, listen to them. And sometimes listen listening is very steeped in practice. Sometimes you can wrap in technology. When we listen to donors, sometimes folks aren't going to want to meet with you. You just need to make electronic opportunities. Like I think John and Becky at We Are For Good use SpeakPipe. And they, there are ways for people to sort of connect with them so they can listen to folks that don't necessarily involve a one-to-one direct conversation. It's very easy to talk about like the 60-plus-year-old donor and how they did it. But as we're looking to this morphe, younger, more tech-savvy generation, like we have to be advocates of how we can listen across the spectrum. I'm not a tech uh, person, so there's maybe a couple of these traits that are oriented in um, zeros and ones, but a lot of them are just very foundational. So listening for listening's sake, baseline. You mentioned empathy. Part of this, and I point to Rob Volpe's work on empathy, is that there's these effective and cognitive versions of empathy that require that we let go of the biases and the experiences that we've had before. You know, you, you're trying to meet with a, an individual donor who's a CEO of a company, and in your past experiences, you've had executive assistants that are sort of like door closers, and they, they rope off the donor. Would you assume that every single executive assistant is going to be that way? Maybe. But I try to say, how can I pause? How can I be silent? And how can I listen to what this EA is telling me? Maybe there's something between the lines. And so that's one of those ways to be empathetic is the practice in servant leadership to get to better conversations. The awareness when we're going to your flywheel, I, I actually like wrote it out in a circle. And I had to find it on your website to see how you all visualized it. The awareness behavior of servant leadership, one of the, the easy, easy things. And I'm I'm trying to be a better steward of it, like behind my computer now, my cell phone is face down. So when it lights up, I can't see it. The research out there that shows how long a, even just like a vibrating smartwatch or a lit up screen can distract you. And I imagine just sitting at at the table with a donor and someone's trying to tell you this very meaningful story. And then your Apple watch vibrates. Some research has said that that pulls your brain away from that conversation for the length of five football fields in time. It's something like 30, 40 seconds. Imagine they said something incredibly meaningful and your brain just went over here. You had no chance of being aware or self-aware in that moment because you were just pulled away. So what I try and do, unless I'm really waiting, expecting that like my wife is going to have to give me a call for the kiddo or something, leave the phone in the car. I prefer regular watches because this thing would just be lighting up all the time if it was tech-based. I went to three things there, listening, empathy, and awareness. And that's those are some of the things that I tethered to that listening part of the flywheel. Even you saying... Hey, you can use SpeakPipe. You can use some different tech solutions to listen a little bit more at scale or to people who maybe aren't used to talking on the phone. That in and of itself struck me as you actually having listened and being aware of people's behavior and being like, hey, this generation doesn't want to talk on the phone, but they may use SpeakPipe or something like that. So even that, that's an, even that is an act of listening and serving, right? Which is taking note of, of how people prefer to interact with your nonprofit. Yeah, that's. I think of how many times we look at how notes are kept in, you know, CRM X, Y, and Z. Like there are some you're not going to put in there necessarily that like someone. There's some information with like HIPAA and other things that like when you think of like the medical stuff, like you might not put in there that someone had some like really glaringly weird medical procedure, but you might put that, you know, Becky and Bill, a married couple, call and ask to speak to Becky. Bill hates the phone. Like, make useful notes based on stuff you've listened to and heard. I came to an organization once where I was looking at all the returned mail, like a pile of returned mail, and there were like three or four versions of a donor who, by the fourth version, it was red ink and a Sharpie. It's like, continue sending us emails. Please stop sending us print mail. And just nobody opened it. Nobody made that note in the CRM. Listening as an act of cognitive reception to what something says doesn't necessarily need to be the spoken word, but yeah. And I've learned that 
through bouts of failure, which I think sometimes we learn best by learning what not to do. Yeah, man, one of the best things that you could do if you're like a fundraiser and, and you're at a larger shop that has like a receptionist is just hang out at a reception for an hour or two and just see what kind of calls they're getting or what kind of people walk through the door and what kind of conversations they're having. Uh, you can learn so much. The same with like asking finance department to like, if somebody wrote something on a reply slip, like I would love to see that, even if it's just an encouragement, but I would love to see that. That is a way of of listening to donors. So um, fan, fantastic key behavior that you've identified here, which is listening awareness and empathy. The next step in the flywheel is then engaging. And oftentimes engaging is a way to follow up on listening. And it's a way to actually show a person, I've heard what you said. And here's one way that I'm going to engage you on it. What behaviors of a servant leader map to, to engagement? What I noted here, one of the things that I point to in the book, and I, I wrote this in Philanthropy News Digest a couple of years ago, there's an HR practice that is called stay interviews. But some people may or may not be familiar. We think of exit interviews, stay interviews from the lens of a human resource bent are the conversations you can have with people while they're still working at your organization to figure out what's going well, what can be improved. And they don't necessarily need to be tethered to annual reviews or annual appraisals. In my view, they shouldn't be. You should, mm-hmm. I, when I, I manage teams and I make sure that the, the concept that is within stay interviews is part of every weekly or biweekly meeting agenda. Like we get to the tactical stuff and then the very end of it is like, start, stop, continue. What, what can we put on the chopping block and otherwise? I took a little bit of a spin on the stay interview and I suggested that we can do stay interviews with donors. Um, I have that version. You, people can, if they're listening, they can just look in Philanthropy News, Philanthropy News Digest for that. But I think stay interviews with donors, very practical way to prompt questions from them. And if you can find a way to generatively and actively listen to what people are saying, there was one organization that this was before I formally got into fundraising, but I realized that there was some, we had like the sweetest, and I say had, I don't know if this person is still with us, you know, on the planet, but the sweetest front desk person, they, they had a title, I don't want to butcher it and, and be reductive, but we had donors, patrons and others who would just call like they would come to the the organization. It was a, a physical space that people could come to. They would just love to go chat with the front desk person. They would call to speak to the front desk person. And they had a conversation, what I would call a stay interview question with someone. And that person opened up a, a nugget of information, something like, We love, like, we love giving money to the organization. Could you tell the fundraising team on their email signatures to like increase the font size? Because we like it's really hard for me and my husband to see the phone number. And every anytime I want to call Jim, the gift officer, I have to call the front desk, which we love doing because we love calling the front desk. And that in a staff meeting, that recommendation got shared with us. And we said, Oh my, like really? How wonderful and simple. And it was just that was prompted of someone who had trust for our organization. And it led to a changed behavior. Elect- electronic mail size, you know. There's a cost to it, but like increasing the phone number font size from seven to 12 for this one person and probably for others made a world of difference. And I, I think that's so cool. So when you think about engaging people from the flywheel perspective, I consider that, I tether that to the building community aspect of servant leadership. And stay interviews is one of the ways in the book, on the Philanthropy News Digest blog and other spaces where I talk about how to engage and build community through that perspective. Yeah, we very much align there. We talk about engaging as as gathering with people. And it can be online, hopefully in person in, in some sort of way. And I'm not saying it has to be a gala. <laughs> Everybody knows my feelings on galas. But just like gathering with other humans and gathering in, in community, communing, having communion, not in the religious sense, but in the sense of like communing with each other. Although for some charities that the, the religious sense certainly applies as having communion. I talked to this fundraiser who used to sell uh, phone and cable packages for a big company here in Canada uh, before he became a fundraiser. So he would be the one, you know, leading the team that would be calling like oftentimes elderly people and be like, hey, you know, your internet could be faster. And I'm not saying that they were targeting elderly people. It's just oftentimes you talk to elderly people and they didn't really have an idea of what their internet package was. And so for the salesperson, that upsell was easier. And he just told me some of their tactics, which were deeply rooted 
in listening, empathy, and awareness. And he told me if there was a dog barking in the background, the person on the phone, the salesperson would be like, oh my gosh, I hear a dog barking. What what kind of dog do you have? And they would note down the name of the dog in the CRM. And next time that they called, they would make sure to be like, hey, how's, how's the dog, right? Call them a name. There's so much of that little awareness. And I don't love that that's like a sales tactic, but but you can reclaim that for something good in your shop, right? There's so much that we still have to learn about awareness and actually picking up on verbal and non-verbal cues that donors are sending us. Yep. It's the, the the space between. It's the donor didn't bring up their dog, donor didn't bring up the family member who's ill, but maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But if that weaves its way in, uh, one of the behaviors in servant leadership is persuasion. And when we think of uh, Rachel D'Souza had a great post on this a couple of years ago about poverty porn. And that's not the way to do it. I think that can, you know, down here in Texas, hurricanes, floods, things like that, that can, um, there's always galvanization in the community behind that. But like that kind of philanthropy is difficult to maintain and sustain. Um, If you had a hurricane every other day, that'd be a different story. Maybe there's something structural you can do about that. But the idea of persuading people to your cause, you you can do it the right way. There can also be some insidious stuff with persuasion uh, that we'll call what you said, the dog tactic. And there there are ways to do that. We should make a note in a CRM, the dog note. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. The, ne- the next part of the flywheel is ask. And here's, I'm, I'm super curious what you have to say here. I know that there is a misconception about servant leadership, which is that a servant leader, and, and it's a misconception. I just want to be super clear. It's a misconception. Is that a servant leader, when you think about the term, you think it's like a, sort of a meek person who like their way of leadership is more listening and engagement and leading from the back. Uh, and maybe we don't think of somebody who's actually bold in asking, but that is a key core behavior of what makes any leader, including a servant leader. So how how does this map to servant leadership? Would you be surprised to know that some of the names that I think don't often get equated with servant leadership are folks like Martin Luther King Jr., Abraham Lincoln, Albert Schweitzer, Mother Teresa? I mean, when you think about it, these are people who we know their names because they did bold enough things that have put them at the fore. This notion of, and, I, and I've said this in, in many places, this idea of service to a fault, where we give too much of ourselves and don't really leave the space for healing and other growth, that is, when we think of the misconceptions in servant leadership, that's one of the spaces where that meagerness may come to fore. It's a little on the backstory on how this all came to be in the 1960s, Bob Greenleaf, who you and I have spoken about read Herman Hesse's Journey to the East. And there's a character in that book named Leo, who was this group's servant. He was, you know, washed their clothes, did the menial tasks. And then what you find out, fast forward in the book, is that once Leo disappears, everything falls apart. And then the one of the characters in Journey to the East realizes later that Leo, as the servant, was the true leader of the group. His service was the element keeping the work moving forward. And so I would agree full on the the asking aspect of this work. I would tether to two of the, the behaviors in servant leadership, which is conceptualization and commitment to the growth of other people. Now, conceptualization, when you look in the academic lens of servant leadership, that's the one thing that people are like, it's something Bob Greenleaf wrote about, spoke about, keynoted, did workshops on, but it's how, you know, how do you... V- practicize conceptualization. And one of the things you mentioned something a little bit earlier in this conversation about like engaging with donors who are giving over time and what's working, what's not working for them. I found at one organization, I was sort of pseudo coaching with them that they were a a contributed and earned revenue-based organization. And so they had program services and also donations. So when checks would come in, the finance manager, no one had conceptualized for the finance manager that checks might be gifts grants and program revenue. So it all just got like, they wrote it down on the Chase Bank slip. I don't know what bank it was, but they deposited it all in. And then that information never made its way to the philanthropy team. So they, we got a call one time and the, the donor had a question and, and everyone was just sort of unaware of who this person was that they had been making recur. I think they were like doing on uh, recurring gifts, but they were doing them once a month as a check, kind of like a you know, it was a person of a certain age and there was no right. harm done. But that idea of when we think about how we ask, 
are we testing our own processes? Are we looking mm-hmm. conceptually at what works? If someone makes an online gift, how are we notified internally? What I think it was your show where you had uh, someone on a, a ways back where you're talking through, I think it was like Zapier and other automations. That, that's a world that I don't understand. But like when someone makes a gift, are they do they automatically go through this uh, this process where maybe four days later they get like an automated, thanks for your gift. Here are some of the things that we've done with it. Are you testing the donation process internally? Are you inviting an impartial third party? You know, can you ask them to make their gift? And just, we know you love this organization. You typically make your gifts online. Could you work with us and test this out? You're asking for the gift, but you're also doing that like ask for advice kind of situation. And maybe someone will say, you know, it was kind of clunky or no, it was super smooth. I got my thank you letter folded away for my tax purposes at the end of the year. But oftentimes you find some step of the process that is um, organization I work with uses a program called Ovation on the back end. And it's like, you have to click the $50 donation, you click continue. The next page, it's like, are you sure you want to make a $50 donation? Click continue. And you have to do that like two or three times before you even enter first name, Mike, address and all those things. And it's like, with the attention span of folks these days, if we're asking them to give up their time and money, are there ways we can improve upon and streamline this process? How can we conceptually be better about asking for money? I'll pause there and see if there's any any things that are curious for you on that tether. Yeah, here's what's curious for me is that you just identified a few process things and we don't think of leadership as process often. We think of leadership like a good servant leader leads from the back, does these things. These are the, the characteristics of the person. But you're like, no, like, Leadership can be process that serves somebody better than they're currently being being served. Leadership, good like serve, serving through leadership can be fixing a donation form. It it can be asking donors to you know donors that we've listened to and engaged properly. We can then ask them, hey, would you help us figure this out? Asking for brain share before wallet share. That's where I went when you when you start talking. Is that I hadn't even considered that as being part of servant leadership. Well, I've given you a new brain wrinkle there and solidified some stuff for me. I I think that's all true. And one of the things that I do, it's maybe a little bit sneaky. My wife and I have different last names. And so when an organization, you know, the thing that I hate, we get, my name is Evan Wildstein. We'll often get mail to Mr. and Mrs. Wildstein. That might've been okay in like 1991, but the lack of data integrity that we find, I am so avid about any organization I either work with or coach or consult to just look in, like pull a query and see like organizations I've given to, I can tell like from the letters and things, like the organizations that have really spent a moment to put my wife's first name, her last name, my first name, last name. And it's dear Huda and Evan, not dear Mr. and Mrs. Evan Wildstein. I think in Texas too, some things are very traditional down here. It's very like husband first a lot of times. Mm -hmm. So there there are so many ways that we can do that better. And it doesn't matter if you're a chief development officer, CEO, I think, and I believe, and I feel everyone should walk that talk and just see, like have the CEO make a $5 donation Mm -hmm. online, walk that walk. So that way when they're sitting out with someone and they say to the CEO, your website's kind of junk. Like I tried to make a stock gift and like there was no way to do it. And like, let's face it, most organizations, like that's that's heady to do that. You'd have to call someone. We'd have to call our financial advisor and it's probably 90% of organizations are there. But even then, know yeah. what to do. Conceptualize the road to getting your donor to comfortably part with money they worked hard for and that they want to give you. Yeah. So we're moving on on the flywheel. Uh, we've asked now it is time to celebrate. And for us, celebrating is uh, is thanking, but we prefer to talk about celebrating because thinking is perfunctory and celebrating is extra. <laughs> extra as in you got to be extra. Anybody can think, but you got to celebrate people. Giving is good. Philanthropy is good. Celebrating your staff, make it a celebration to uh, help create habits and influence behaviors and persuade. You talked about that as being a, a, a core behavior of servant leaders. How would you map celebration with the servant leadership framework? I just made another note on my little cheat sheet here. The the thing that originally struck out to me was in the realm of the servant leadership behavior of building community. One of the things that I do, you call them whatever you want, is in any organization where I am a fundraiser, whether it's a dollar donation or a hundred thousand dollar donation, I and you made a prompt. I don't know if this is before we got on or not about the idea of thinking internally about how we grow these things to do better work from the inside out. I send 
daily, weekly, whatever they are, gift logs is what I call them, L-O-G-S. And that's a simple email. We got $300 gifts today. Here's hundred bucks from Mike. Here's a program it supported. Here's his email. Here's hundred dollar gift from Everett, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What I, and I tend to do that at the very least for the, the management team. And in some organizations, I've done it around the whole organization. Not if it's you know, a 3,000 person organization, but if you got 20 or 30 people. And back in the day, I used to do those as the, you know, the giant like strategic planning post-it notes that you put up on the wall. I'd say, Mike D made a $5,000 gift today. And I can't tell you how many times people would like go in and get a cup of water and be like, well, who's Mike? Why do you give that? And they would come to talk with me or the associate director of development and just have a conversation about it and begin to be curious. And that internal celebration of philanthropy that comes in, how many people, I've worked at like think tanks and public policy organizations where people are so good and expert at the outward facing work that they don't Mm -hmm. often think about the spirit of philanthropy as a way to drive the fact that we can afford to pay for you and your benefits. And so when you can get, when you can celebrate donors, big and small, what they say, treat everyone well, you can't always treat everyone equally, but if you treat everyone well and make your internal team aware of what's happening, I've had people come to me and say, do you, do you meet with Mike D often? Like, could I, could I send Mike D an email and say, thanks so much for your gift. It's helping to fund my salary, which is making it possible for me to work with school teachers in this district and improve their, their skills. And that sort of like cycle is connected. So that building community element stuck out for me. And the other one, this is back when I first formally got into fundraising. I was with a, a small consultancy here in Houston that did a lot of capital campaigns, very strategic structural things. And they had this document that I borrowed, a simple stewardship matrix. It's a you know sideways Excel spreadsheet. You think about you can parse it out by the month, you know, January through December, whatever your fiscal year is. You can parse it out by dollar amount, you know, 100 bucks and less, $10,000 and more. What you do for that level of donor, when you do it, and who leads that work, it allows you on paper to say, when I think about stewardship, I think about expensive, glossy paper. But maybe this can just mean for the five people who are making five-figure gifts to our organization in February every year, we can have our board secretary pick up the phone and say, I volunteer with this organization. You volunteer for them with your money. Uh, thank you so much for doing that. That's huge. I've had like one organ. I'm not a major donor, but I've had like one organization's board member call me and it, oh, the heartstrings, it just pulled so much. But I think those stewardship matrices are, when you think of stewardship as a servant leader behavior, it's rooted in trust. And that's all stewardship is, is encouraging trust in the dyad with a donor. You can either start with it or if someone has entrusted you with their money, some people like the glossy impact annual report, but some people just want to know that the gift was received. The gift mm-hmm. was, I mean, I've, how many of us have been places where like someone advises a DAF gift of five, ten, twenty thousand $20,000 and it sort of clunkily gets sent to you. And then on the bottom of the note from the donor advised fund, it says, no further communication is needed with the donor. And how many people just kind of file that away and say, well, they said I didn't need to, but we really should. We should encourage that trust in the diet with the donor. Let them know we received it. Thank you so much for thinking of us. You had plenty of other organizations you could have supported. And those stewardship matrices let you look at a codified way at like, what can we do? Even if you have no budget money, what can we do? When can we do it? How can we do it? All in the name of making people feel good, again, about those dollars that they parted with. Yeah. In your example, yeah, it says like no further communication needed. Or sometimes it says here in Canada, sometimes you don't even get the address of it might be from a person, but you don't get the address uh, or it might be from whatever. And then you kind of go like, uh, it ends up as a soft credit. If you're lucky, if not, it ends up somewhere and nobody ever knows. And you miss the chance to listen and engage because you could reach out to the person and say, Hey, I know it said no further communication needed. Do you mind if I ask you a few, a few questions? Because this is really quite an extraordinary gift and you must be an extraordinary person. And may, maybe no further communications was needed, but maybe it was appreciated. And maybe what they were trying to tell you is, don't keep asking me all the time because I've made these gifts in the past and all I got was hounded for asks. Maybe or that's nothing. what they meant. Or nothing at all. Or they yeah. get nothing. So, I you know. one of the data pulls that I that I've done at a former organization was is just looking at like a high low, like pull the query for this fiscal year, and like what the the top the second to the top funder was like Van uh, Fidelity Charitable, and I said, 
can someone explain this to me? And it's like, we, we didn't think enough to sort of bifurcate out that like we had nine donors giving to us from Fidelity. And so it just looks on the data, like Fidelity, the company has invested, you know, six or seven figures in us. And that allowed us to go back and mine through the data and yeah. say, oh my gosh, we've, we've never, some of these people have been giving to us nine, 10, 12 years. And we've never, I mean, in spite of the fact that we've not stewarded them. And that's, right. that's pretty incredible. Someone at Fidelity is getting a lot of thank you notes from the org. And they're like, I don't know. We're not even connected. To what's going on? Um, I, I think they probably yeah. were, were not getting <laughs> thank you notes, which is telling lack of data is data, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Lastly, uh, reporting. This ties back to stewardship. I, I think. I think we're, you know, the, the celebrating reporting. We we are we're tying some of that together at this point. But I do I, I do want to hear from you internally. The reporting we get, we need to report back to donors. One of the things that I found helpful, I've told a story on this podcast many times, which is reporting back to staff on specifically program people. We went, hey, we need a story from somebody. Hey, we need your help with this. They would help out. But then at the end of the appeal, just go back to them and be like, hey, that appeal raised $300,000. And the person you put us in touch with or your interview or or the beneficiary or they were or the fact that you allowed us to interview some program beneficiaries was a big part of it so i just wanted to say thank you for that and by the way here's some comments that we got from donors and we used to do that just like like you mentioned like here's the people who gave today we used to just disseminate feedback from donors and results to everyone and this fella i, I won't name him but a very protective of the people that we were serving. Uh, big, big Papa Bear energy, right? It was really hard to get access to interviews from people because he was standing in between fundraising and marketing and the people we were serving for a very good reason. But through this process, he became to just like love hearing donor feedback because it made him really valued and felt like he was doing something very meaningful. And I stopped doing this thing for whatever reason. I think my job changed a little bit. I stopped you know, I got busy. A few weeks later, he came to my desk. He's like, "So, any new, any new donor feedback lately? Any, uh, yeah, just." Uh, and it's like, "Oh, okay, you've missed this. You've missed the report back from our end." So this is just as important internally as it is externally, isn't it? It is, and a lot of the stuff we've spoken about on this recording so far, I think, center around that that gift log mentality that how you share not just figures, but who these people are, why they're interested in the work is sort of internal reporting. One of the things that I have tried to do when it's appropriate is in outward communication. You know, it, it includes working with the finance team and the executive leadership. I've, I've done this thing that's called, I call it a statement of commitments, where in like letters and things to donors, you say, even if it's a general operating gift, whether it's broader or program specific, like here's what we as an organization have committed to doing with the resources that we are so humbly able to accept. And it could be just a, a small paragraph. I mean, some of that could also include how we, you know, if there are, if it's a small staff and like the CEO and like a gift officer, are the only two people involved in fundraising, like maybe on the website or in a letter or something, do a couple internal interviews just to try and get to know a little bit more about people. Like John has been fundraising for 15 years. Like, no, John has three chinchillas and they're each named after like a fruit. Include that, like humanize some of the work that we do by internally looking at who we are and share that. If we can humanize some of that, I think this is probably my least intelligible answer for you, but this is where that idea of reporting struck me. You know, what I wrote down here was this idea of stewardship and I circled statement of commitments as a way to think about how we know what we know about the people internally and how we can get them comfortably connected with folks outside the organization, namely donors. Where can people find you? This has been a fantastic conversation. There is a whole book behind this. There are, uh, there's 10 key behaviors. Every key behavior actually has three actionable and practical, practical and tactical things that people can can actually implement. You mentioned it's a three toilet trip kind of a book. I don't know. I think a reframe is it's like a short flight book. You know, you, you jump on a short flight and you take this book along. By the time you land, you are just buzzing with ideas. Where can people find you and where can people find a book? I love LinkedIn these days. I find myself to be one of the few full-time in-house actual fundraisers who 
either are stubborn or bold enough to write a lot on there. So if you just look up Evan Wildstein, I'm the one with the beard and my picture is kind of like, I think, yellowishy hue. Uh, the book website is just the nonprofiteers.com. And that gets you to, there's sort of a media kit and things in there. So you can get some ideas about like how it came to fruition. And if people want to just email me, like I'm always happy to just have a conversation. Email is me at evanwildstein.com. Tried to make that as easy as I could. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming coming on the show and congrats again on on launching this book. Thank you. It's so great to be here. You're doing fantastic work. Can't wait to keep listening. Well, that's all for today. That was a bit of a wide-ranging conversation on a whole bunch of things. So here's my short action plan for you. If you take anything away from today's episode, I want you to remember that conversation that Evan and I had about involving staff on your team who may not be who may not have fundraising responsibilities involving them in the fundraising by having something like a gift log or some way of sharing when gifts are coming in or some weekly update or some sort of feedback uh, that donors have given you to share that with the rest of the team to just show up as a leader in your shop to show others hey this is how we are also serving donors. We often think in this shop, we're serving the people we help, but we're also serving donors. And donors actually want to serve our organization, the people we help as well. And it's this beautiful triad between donor and beneficiary and staff and volunteers. And it's all of us doing something together. And even if you don't have fundraising responsibilities, I want you to feel what it feels like to see the joy of giving in action and to know that there's people out there who care so much that they will actually give up their money to help pay for your salary and to help pay for this for this whole thing to work. So is there a way that you can do that? Is there a way, even if it's as simple as once a week, you send out an email with, hey, this week uh, we raised this much money from this many people, or hey, this week a donor sent in this little comment on an email and I wanted to share it with you because I want you to get the credit for this. We all deserve the credit for this, not just a fundraiser. If you want to be part of future Build Good Lives, when we actually do this podcast live, simply go to buildgood.com and sign up with your email on that homepage. That way, I'll send you an invite when it is time to go live. We go live every few weeks. So I'd love to have you in the room next time that we go live. Thank you for hanging out with us around the fundraising campfire. If you're listening to this, you're my kind of people. I'm your kind of people. Thank you for the work you do. I'm your host, Mike Dirksen, cheering you on as you build good in the world.